If you haven't done so already, would you turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3? Gospel of John, chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 22 to 36 today. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are extra pew Bibles available to you, and you can find the sermon text on page 888 in that pew Bible. And once you've found your place, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Hear the Word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside, and He remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how great the darkness is upon our souls at times. Our sins are ever before us. The powers of darkness hurl their threats at us. Doubts arise in the midst of our confusion. Circumstances seem unbearable from time to time and... Joy seems so much like a stranger on these days. But I know that my Redeemer lives and that joy is no stranger to Him. He has known joy for all eternity and you sent Him into this world that our joy might be full in Him. That we might have eternal joy in Your presence. And my prayer is that you give us a taste of that joy this morning as we turn to Your holy Word, open our hearts wide to receive your truth, 
Shine the light of Christ into our darkness. Fill us now with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verses 22 to 26 set the stage for today's message. Jesus is finished talking with Nicodemus about his need for the new birth and new life through through Jesus' own sacrificial death. This is what Nicodemus needed. He's done talking with him about that. And we now find him in a different scene with his disciples in the Judean countryside baptizing people. And apparently John the Baptist is also in the surrounding region baptizing people. And people were still still coming to him for this baptism. So we see a bit of an overlap between John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry. And this overlap in their ministry, especially as it's playing itself out in Baptism for repentance, it causes a discussion to arise between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. This isn't the first time we've seen this word purification. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 6 at the wedding at Cana. Purification is the same word used in chapter 2, verse 6 to describe the stone water jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. So John has in mind the ceremonial washing under the old order of Jewish law. This is what these guys are arguing about when they come to John. And the irony about the discussion they're having over purification is that the true purifier, the one who brings true cleansing from from our sins through his blood, the one who replaces ceremonial washing with the new wine of his own blood in the kingdom is just across the way baptizing folks. But they don't see that yet. They don't see Jesus this way. Just like chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 say, the Son of God was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came even to his own people, the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. Or like verse 32 says in our passage today, no one receives Jesus' testimony. So instead of running out to see the true purifier, this man named Jesus, and to be with him and to follow him and to learn from him, They actually grow very skeptical that so many people are going out to this man named Jesus. This seems like a problem in their eyes. So they come to John and say this in verse 26. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. In other words, how is your mission going to succeed, John? If they're all going to Jesus, you're going to have to get some more smoke and lights in this place. Right? In this camel hair thing. It's just not cutting it with the hipsters. 
They're worried that so many would be going to Jesus. Sure, some are still coming to John. But Jesus' crowds are getting noticeably larger at this point. What do you say about this, John? Is their question. John then replies by basically telling them, Everybody's going to Jesus? That makes me the happiest man on earth. Do you want to know where I find my soul, where my soul, where, where I, my, my soul finds true gladness? What gives me pleasure in life? What fuels my joy every day? Everybody going to Jesus as a result of my proclamation. Read his response with me in starting in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So he's essentially saying that heaven ordained this to be the case, that everybody go out to Jesus. Heaven ordained this to be the case, that Jesus grow in popularity and John John continue to fade into the background. What they're observing in the Judean countryside is not a small interruption of plans to be perturbed over. All of heaven is behind the prominence of Jesus Christ. All are going to them, going to him because God wants them to. That's what John the Baptist has been trying to tell them all along. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John made it clear to them already what his ministry was about. He is that end-time prophet anticipated by Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. He is that Elijah-like messenger that Malachi promised hundreds of years before who was to announce the day of God's visitation. He came, John says, here in his gospel as a witness to bear witness about The light so that all might believe in him. Not in John, but in him. His preaching ministry was never in an end in itself. And neither was his baptism. Chapter 1, verse 31 says, For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that the Messiah might be revealed to Israel. God appointed John to announce the coming of Christ, to tell the people... Don't come looking here for eternal life and peace with God. You look to Him. There's the man you need, Jesus of Nazareth. Behold, look over there. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I saw the Spirit descend on this man, not another man, this man. And He is the one who brings eternal life. He is the Son of God. So, to their surprise, John is thrilled that folks are going to Jesus. Heaven ordained Jesus' increase, and the whole point of John's ministry is that Jesus would increase. And then to top it off, John compares his joy to that of a best man rejoicing over the bridegroom at his wedding festivities. Some of you know this experience, standing as best men in a wedding 
I, for my brother and several other friends of mine, standing in several weddings and seeing the doors open and the bride coming down the aisle, and you're just as emotional as your brother or your friend. You're just rejoicing inside and elated to see their union. Verse 29. In verse 29, John says this of himself. The one who has the bride, he is the bridegroom. He's saying that's Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, that's John, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a fitting illustration this is for John to use when talking about Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, God referred to himself as a husband to his covenant people Israel. That's why, this, that's why the, a lot of the prophets can speak of Israel's sin as adultery. They're committing adultery against their husband, God, their covenant husband. It's also why they can talk about Israel's salvation from those very sins, from that adultery as marriage. So, for example, in Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 to 20, God promises to deliver his people from their idolatry. And he gives this image that at one point Israel is calling out to their idols, my Baal, my Baal. Right? Well, God delivers them. He's promising to deliver them from those idols. And in that day of salvation, it says that they shall call God my husband. They will not, they're not going to any longer turn to Baal to find happiness. They're going to turn to God and say, my husband. God even promises in that same text to betroth them. Some marriage, more marriage language, to betroth them to himself forever in righteousness and justice and in faithfulness. And what we learn from the New Testament is that ultimately these Old Testament images foreshadow the day when all God's people are presented to Jesus Christ as a bride made ready for her husband who gave his life for her, that she might be as Revelation 19 says, clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. Not, no longer ugly in her sins and guilt, but now clothed with splendor. In fact, Ephesians 5, when Paul says that marriage was built off the fact that God was going to unite Christ to a bride, Ephesians 5 implies that's been God's plan since before the world even began. Christ, as husband over his people, through his saving work, is the story of Scripture from beginning to end. And here comes John the Baptist comparing Jesus to the bridegroom. Not just a bridegroom, but the bridegroom. And John's own role is that of the best man, as if to say, not only has heaven ordained Jesus receive a bride, not only did God send me to announce He's coming for his bride. But I've just heard his voice myself. And that means the church bells are ringing. The wedding day is coming. 
And I am thrilled with this one called Jesus. Because when he goes up, when he's revealed as supreme son of God, the faithful husband, my joy is complete. I delight in his increase because he, as the son of God, is supremely worthy to increase. Do you hear the divine plan in the increase of Jesus Christ that makes John so happy there? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's a divine must. Jesus must increase. I, John, must decrease. God determined that Jesus increase, that he be seen and recognized as the truly supreme one. And God determined that John the Baptist decrease. And that fuels John's joy. Joy doesn't come by forcing your own agendas over God's wise plans. John's, somehow John's over God's. That's covetousness. Joy doesn't come with self-preservation to make us more popular. That's idolatry. Joy doesn't come by making our Christian living more comfortable. John went to prison, verse 24 says, and he got his head cut off, the other gospels tell us. That's a, that's a serious decrease. Our joy, like John's joy, must be rooted in the exaltation of the Son of God at all costs. He knew the Lord's will to preach the coming Messiah and His kingdom until Jesus arrived for His public ministry and journey to the cross and then get out of the way. He doesn't begrudgingly step aside so that Jesus will increase. Instead, as the best man, he rejoices to see the bridegroom arriving for his mission to redeem his bride. It was determined by God that John would decrease, and he was glad. Joy came for John. Joy came by submitting to the Father's will to make his son supreme through every act of his life. I wonder how many of us have this, this perspective. Where the whole of our life is given over to the Father's will to make the Son supreme. Let me get more concrete than that. We know that the Father's will, we, we know what the Father's will is, right? We, we know. The Father's will for us because it is plainly and sufficiently revealed in Scripture. We know His will. And we know that when we abide in the Father's will, His Son is revealed as supreme to others. So, for example, husbands, the Father's will for our marriage is that we love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. If you're lacking joy in your marriage, a question for you to seriously ask yourself is this. Is my life given over to the Father's will to love my wife as Christ loved the church? If it's not, then you're trying to fabricate joy for your marriage with something false. 
Joy comes when we submit ourselves to the Father's will for marriage, which is display Jesus as supreme by imitating his sacrificial love, his pursuit of his bride's well-being, and his affection for her delight. Or as another example, church, the Father's will for our neighbors around us Think in terms of our neighbors here in White Settlement, or our neighbors, your next door neighbors. You can mention their names in your head, I'm sure. You know what their mailboxes look like. The Father's will for our neighbors is that we make ourselves servants to them that we might win more of them to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9.19 If we want to foster true joy in our homes and in our care groups and in our church gatherings, we need to consider seriously what efforts we are making to see the name of Jesus increase in our neighborhoods, not just increase on our iPods. Joy comes through demonstrating Jesus' supremacy in living selflessly for the eternal good of others. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 11. That your joy may be full, just like John's. Submitting yourself to the Father's will to see Jesus supreme in all things in every area of your life. Or what about when we consider the Father's will in the practice of something like prayer. Like the spiritual discipline of prayer. The scriptures command us, be constant in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Pray without ceasing. Prayer not only reveals our total dependence on the supremacy of God's Son... Thus we pray in Jesus' name. But God also uses prayer to spread the supremacy of God's Son. Over our own lives, over our relationships with others, over our care groups, over the lives of our neighbors, and ultimately over peoples, lost peoples outside of this land. Could it be that for some of us, joy is often lacking in our Christian walk because we're not truly desirous of Jesus' supremacy over all things? There's no cry in our heart going up for our children, Lord, reign in their hearts. There's no cry for our co-workers, Father, open a door to Jim to declare the excellencies of Christ as I ought to speak. We've just grown satisfied with the way things normally go in a world ruled by their flesh and the devil when God Almighty has planned and determined to make Jesus Christ supreme over all. We could give more examples. The point I want you to seriously consider is whether you believe that true joy is rooted in Jesus' supremacy. Do you believe that true and lasting joy is rooted in Jesus' supremacy? John the Baptist knew that true joy only comes when the whole of our life is given over to the Father's will in making Jesus supreme. God's ultimate plan assigns all supremacy to Jesus Christ, and here is where every disciple is to find their joy. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, 
that God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in the Christ, whether things in heaven or whether things on the earth. Joy comes not with resisting that truth, but by wholeheartedly embracing it and seeing it played out in everything you commit yourself to. But this still leaves us, a, this still leaves us kind of asking a question. The question as to, to why Jesus must be the one to increase. Why is it that true joy only comes, not with my, de- not with my increase, but with Jesus' increase, with Jesus' supremacy, not with someone else's supremacy? Some of you visiting with us this morning may have that very question. What makes Jesus so great? As opposed to Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Buddha. What's so great about Jesus? Why is it that he is the one that... Inc- is that he- Why is it that our joy is to be found when he increases in particular? Verses 31 to 36 give us at least four reasons why Jesus is the one who must increase. First... Jesus is supreme because he alone is from above. Jesus is supreme because he alone is from above. Verse 31, he who comes from above, that's Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. In the immediate context, that's John the Baptist, the earthly one. He may be... The earthly here is not, uh, it's a different word. Not, not the world that we talked about last week that's corrupt and dark, and broken. He's speaking like in terms of heaven and earth, that distinction. Not a moral distinction here, but he's earthly. He has earthly limitations. Okay? That's John the Baptist. He may be God's appointed forerunner to speak God's words and to announce the coming of Jesus. He may have been, as chapter 1 says that he was even sent by God. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He might have even been sent by God. But even John wasn't sent from above. That mission belongs solely to the Son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. He who comes from heaven is above all, he says. This unique Son sits above, as Isaiah says, sits above the earth, the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. This unique son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Whether thrones or authorities or rulers or dominions, all things were created by him and for him. And he is above all things. And in him all things hold together. He created, owns, and commands the universe from celestial powers to subatomic particles. And he came here in the person of Jesus Christ. The only God who was in the bosom of the Father for all eternity became flesh and walked in our midst identified with our sin on the cross, and God raised him from the dead on the third day. As the only Son from above, Jesus alone is supreme. Second, Jesus is supreme because his authority to speak 
God's word is unlimited. His authority to speak God's word is unlimited. Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets the seal to this, that God is true. So we've got, we're concerned about speech here. What he bears witness to, what he is speaking, what you are supposed to be receiving from his testimony. For he whom God has sent, that's Jesus, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, it is true that God spoke to his people through prophets inspired by his Spirit. They too uttered God's words. We have them here in our, in our Bibles. Peter tells us that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what's here. But no man ever had or ever will have a measureless anointing from the Spirit save Jesus Christ alone. The Father is always giving the Spirit to His Son without measure. However, an infinite Father gives an infinite Spirit to an infinite Son infinitely. That's what's going on here. However that's happening, that's what's happening here. That's how much Jesus is filled and that's how greatly He's anointed to speak God's Words. That means that whenever he opens his mouth to speak, God himself speaks. Which is why John says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. When we receive Jesus' words, we attest that God is true. Not merely to that Jesus is true, but that God himself is true. At all times... To believe what Jesus says is to believe God himself. His unlimited authority to speak God's words, me, speak God's words means that he alone is supreme. He is God in the flesh when he speaks. There's no other man that speaks like Jesus speaks. Third, Jesus is supreme because the Father loves him. The Father loves him. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Now we should be clear here because last week we saw that God also loved the world. What's going on here? What's the big deal? God loves the world. What's the difference? He loves His Son. He loves the world. They appear to be the same. So we should be clear. God's love for the Son is different from his love for us. For starters, his love for the Son is eternal. It never had a beginning. John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus is praying this to his Father. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because... This is why he has the glory. Because... You loved me before the foundation of the world. 
His love for the Son never had a beginning, whereas His love for us had a beginning when He chose to love us, fallen human beings as we are. The Father's love for the Son is also different from His love for us because the Father has no sinfulness to overcome in loving His Son. That's not the case with us. When God loves us, He loves us in spite of our rebellion against Him. When God loves His Son, He does so because everything about the Son is infinitely lovely, is infinitely holy, is infinitely marvelous. This helps us understand more of what God meant when He declared from heaven, both at Jesus' baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Really well pleased. The one in whom I find my one in whom I find whom I delight most supremely. It's no wonder then that he has given all things into the Son's hand, as verse 35 says. In loving his Son, the Father entrusts to him supreme authority over the whole created universe. Jesus is supreme because the Father loves him. And lastly, Jesus is supreme because not obeying him means eternal punishment. Jesus is supreme because not to obey him means eternal punishment. That's very plain in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son. Notice the shift there. From belief to obey. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son. John is informing us what he means by faith. What he means by belief. Genuine faith in the Son expresses itself in obedience to the Son. So whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. That cannot be said of any other human being ever. That can only be affirmed about God. It can only be affirmed about God. And what John's point is is that Jesus is God. Not to obey him is not to obey God. Not to obey God is has the consequence of eternal punishment. Eternity divides at Jesus Christ. Either you believe in the Son and all that He accomplishes for you in His death and in His resurrection, and you receive the eternal life that comes from Him, or you stiff-arm the Son and the wrath of God continues to remain on you. In other words, without the Son, you're already under God's wrath. It's only in embracing the Son that you escape God's wrath and enter into life. So eternal joy with God and eternal pain in hell hang in the balance when it comes to how you relate to Jesus Christ. You love His supremacy over all things and you will live. You hate His supremacy over all things and you will perish. There's nobody like Jesus. He is supreme. So those are four reasons John gives us for answering why Jesus is supreme. This is why Jesus 
must increase and why he must and us must decrease. He alone is from above. His authority to speak God's word is unlimited. The Father loves him. And not to obey him means eternal punishment. That's how supreme Jesus is. Now here's where this passage gets really exciting. All those truths about Jesus' supremacy are meant to increase your joy because all of them are connected to the work of the bridegroom who came to redeem his bride. In other words, this passage brings together two things for your joy. Christ the bridegroom, Christ supreme. John is bringing both of those things together for your joy. So when we work our way again through his supremacy in verses 31 to 36, let's not forget that that Supremacy belongs to our covenant husband. Does that make sense? Let's tease this out. He has come from above, from heaven to earth. This bridegroom. Why is he coming from heaven to earth? That's what it says. He who comes from above, something happened here, coming from heaven to earth. Why is he doing that? To deliver us from the coming wrath. Dying on a cross to absorb every last bit of God's settled anger against our sin. He pursued his bride even while she was adulterous toward him and laid down his life for her to rescue her from her peril and join him to herself, to himself forever. Not under eternal wrath, not with blazing anger in his eyes, but with joy, Zephaniah says, he rejoices over his bride. That's one way this plays itself out. Moreover, as your husband, he is above all. Your covenant husband is above all. Ladies, you cannot say that about your husband. You can only say that about Jesus Christ. He is above all. Above all cosmic powers, above all worldly temptations, above all difficult circumstances, above all painful trials, above all dark mornings. He is above all of them and thus is infinitely able to provide maximum protection from sin, ultimate deliverance from death, and victory over the devil at every turn. The Father has given all things into his hands. He is a husband, never failing, and always victorious for his bride. Every day. Even more. He's not trapped by the earthly, the earthly limitations so that he, what comes out of his mouth, is limited, is earthly. What he speaks over us is heavenly truth. What he nourishes us with are utterances about the glory of God that he has witnessed for all eternity. We can trust every word he speaks to us we can count on every promise he makes to us. We can depend on him always leading us with infinite wisdom and knowledge and truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Our covenant husband, 
our bridegroom. He even has the spirit without measure. And gladly imparts the same spirit to all united to him by faith. We saw that in 1 Corinthians. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And all of us who believe were made to drink of one spirit. The spirit of Jesus Christ. As our covenant husband, he doesn't withhold the spirit from us. He gives him to us for our eternal good. That's where we're going next week. Chapter 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He won't be thirsty again. The water that I will give, give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the kind of husband we have. And lastly, though not exhaustively, lastly, if he has bound you to himself as a bride then you share in the passionate love with which the Father loves His own Son. John chapter 17, verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me, the love we talked about just a minute ago, that the love with which you loved me might be in them and I in them. Jesus is supreme... Because the Father loves him as his unique son. But don't miss the fact that when we, when we reach back up to see him as the bridegroom and bring him down through the whole passage, don't miss the fact that if the son has bound you to himself as his bride, you share in the intense love between an infinitely glorious father and an infinitely glorious son. You share in that. Is that exciting? Is that exciting to you to know that Christ came from above so that you might have this? You might be united to him in that kind of marriage forever? All of this means that every move the Son of God makes, he makes supremely and infallibly for the eternal joy of his bride. Every move. You read the gospel. You read these gospels. You're turning page after page. Every step the Savior is taking to the cross. Is for your eternal joy as his covenant bride. That's how you should read the Bible. Front to back. Brothers and sisters. Let us not pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin in this world, but embrace the supremacy of Jesus Christ for our true and everlasting joy. He is a supremely great husband whom God has given to us for our ultimate gladness. And soon he will arrive to bring us face to face with his beauty and splendor forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in so many ways we are adulterers at heart. Our sin is ever before us. We are filthy and unclean, but we are so glad that you have sent your son into the world 
to cleanse us from all of our filthiness and join us to your Son forever in a truly holy matrimony. I pray that you would continue to increase our joy in him as we see the Son of God increase in his supremacy in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.